Welcome to the One Stop Shop Podcast. One Stop Shop is Receiptful's weekly podcast with the goal of helping ambitious e-commerce merchants learn from the best. Each episode will have a successful business person tell us their story from their humble beginnings to their triumphs and successes of where they are today. On today's episode, we speak with Becca, Vice President of Oberon Design. Through her story, we receive a refreshing look on how not to lose yourself while growing a company, as well as gain wisdom from her decades of experience. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. I'm Aliana with Jeff on the line. How are you, Jeff? Today I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Today our guest is Becca Smith. She is the Vice President at Oberon Design, a company that makes handmade leather goods and jewelry. Hi Becca, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Becca, why don't we start by learning a little bit about you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and your company? Well, sure. I came to work with my brother. I'm one of five siblings for a big family. Brendan, my brother, who is the founder of Oberon Design, became a leather worker early in his life. I think he was about 17, 16 or 17 when he first started making his leather stuff. So I knew that about him. He had started various little companies before he founded Oberon Design. I had a long history of retail in the specialty food business. We grew up in the Napa Valley. And after a series of circumstances, I decided to come and work with him at Oberon Design. And I think that, you know, it's always a big challenge to work with family members, but we've done a wonderful job over the years. And I think a part of the reason for that is because Brendan is a really gifted craftsman and designer, and I have a lot of retail background, which really helped him in his company. I'm also an artist and a writer, and I bring all of those skills to Oberon Design as well in terms of picking imagery that we like to work with, doing a lot of the writing, and I do all the social media for the company now. Okay, so what other family members work with you guys besides you? And you, you said he's your brother, so is anybody else with you? You know, it's just the two of us. Oh, okay, okay. All right, so you have a pretty unique role then of being not only the VP since 1995, correct? Yes. And then also, like you said, the founder's sister. So, like, we found out a fair amount of info from the website regarding Brendan, why don't you explore a little bit more, like when you say you're an artist and a writer, like what kind of things do you like to do or uh, genres do you write in and work in and that kind of thing? I'm a collage artist. It's sometimes that's a kind of a loose term. So it's, it's hard to visualize what that is. Although collage as a medium has become very popular in the last 10 or 15 years. When I started out, it wasn't nearly as well-recognized as it is now. They're very literary images. I'm a big Jungian, so I'm a person who really loves metaphor and symbols. Joseph Cornell, who is a famous collage person, was a great inspiration when I was younger. So they're multimedia pieces. They're little worlds. They're very theatrical, the imagery that I work in. So that's a whole another part of my life. When I referred before to coming to work with Brendan in 1995, I actually had breast cancer and a bone marrow transplant in 1994, which really turned my life upside down. 
in terms of what I had been doing. And that was how I kind of came into working with Brendan, sort of figuring out what I wanted to do. And I wrote a book about that experience, and I go around talking a lot to cancer patients about the idea of creativity when you're healing from something like that. My brother and I are real makers. My whole family, my grandfather was a stonemason. We're all really people who do things with our hands. We're big gardeners. We like to make things. We're artistic. We're musicians. You know, I come from a really musical family, and that's something some of the big fans of Oberon know about Brendan is that he's an incredible composer and musician. And I'm the family singer. My father was an opera singer. So we have all that going on. And writing, my mother was a writer and a journalist, and she was really a beloved figure in our community growing up. And she has a long legacy, and all of us are good writers. I'm the only, Brendan published Brendan's Leather Book, which is still very readily available floating around out there. And um, I also like to write poetry and fiction, and those things are all very alive in my life and in the life of my siblings. Wow, that that's a lot of stuff <laughs> to go around that. I mean, you just you just gave a ton of depth to the company. Anybody that goes to your website now it could definitely get a bigger it's a much more rich feel. Like it just even kind of the the art that conveys itself through the leather work you've done and uh the both of you have done and everything. So, if we get back up a little bit, now you said you had you you had a, a bout with cancer that obviously you were able to make it through. What during that process drew you to working with your brother? Well, I had been managing the flagship store of Oakville Grocery, which was Pioneer Specialty Foods store and then small chain, and then it was purchased ultimately and became a bigger thing. But in those days, you know, specialty foods, I had already had my own specialty food market. And then at the time that I was diagnosed, I was working there. It was a big job. It was very stressful. And I just wanted to to do something fun and helpful to others that wouldn't be a stressful sort of situation for me. And so I went over to Oberon and I was like, well, you know, you're not putting a mark on any of your things that you're shipping out of here. Nobody, Nobody knows who's making them. You know, they were just really basic things like that that I was able to bring to Brendan. And I got... I got very enthusiastic about helping him to make a nicer catalog and to refine some of his policies and do some basic marketing and everything. And it was just, you know, a marvelous vortex. I just kind of got sucked in completely because there was so much that I could offer this situation. And, And so I got very excited about it because, you know, there's so much pride of ownership in our company in terms of what we offer and the quality that we offer. You know, manufacturing in this country, let alone in California, it's it's practically miraculous that we've been able to do it all these years and to offer our employees really great benefits. And one of the things that I love about being a part of Oberon the most is that not down to the last person, but largely most everybody who works there has been working with Brendan and myself for, you know, 18, 20 years. And that makes for a certain kind of feeling in a company. 
at one time we were a much larger company. Now we're a smaller company, and that sort of suits us. I'm very, very proud of the fact that we've managed to come through all of these things in the American economy preceding 9-11 and after 9-11. We used to make a lot of products for big box stores like you guys may be too young to remember all these names, but Nature Company and Natural Wonders and Museum Company and People's Pottery and various big bookstore chains and other things that all crashed after 9-11 and brought a lot of people down with them, small companies. It was a very bleak, sad story. But we managed to survive all of that by being smart and being really flexible. And the reason that we can be so flexible is because we make everything we make. And so we can make all our own decisions and we're not dependent on a lot of other people. And that is a great American story. And You know, people are much more interested now in American-made things, but for years and years and years, it didn't mean anything to anyone. And, you know, I sure wish that that attitude would outweigh at some point of the, I think the overbearing American attitude is pay the cheapest price that you can find. And, you know, that, of course, is a necessity for a lot of people. And But I think quality versus quantity is something that, we really want to stress. And, you know, Oberon is a champion in that regard. It's the little engine that could. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely, as the the interview goes on, we're going to touch base a little more on the history. I'm also curious, specifically, like you said, you came from, you have a, a larger family and several siblings. It seems like you must have some sort of special connection with Brendan. How would you describe him in a few words? Oh, he's tremendously charismatic, talented person. He's, you know, a very conscious person, a very aware person. He's gone to great lengths over the years to make sure that everybody who works for him is healthy. You know, working with leather is not the healthiest thing that a person can do. And I can't tell you the number of times that inspectors have come through Oberon and just been completely flabbergasted to find somebody who has done and implemented a whole bunch of policies and structural elements within the building itself from anything from stretch breaks. Brendan, you know, before stretch, you know, now people, this is all just sort of common stuff. But Brendan instituted all of that very, very early on. You know, that was already in place when I came to work for him in 1995. So he's very dynamic that way. He's very beloved to the people who work for him. He's, for instance, another great example of that, something that would be completely beyond me, is a number of years ago, Brendan taught himself to work in 3D CAD software in order to do the jewelry designing that we do. You know, I can stand with him at his computer and watch him design things on there and (laughs) just be like, oh, wow, I could never get my brain to think in that way. And he's a brilliant guy. So you you mentioned in the beginning of the interview that he, you know, had started working on leather ever since he was, I don't want to say a child, but since a very young age. So how did he go from basically, you know, doing this as a hobby to doing it as a full-time thing to a business? Oh, sure. And that's a great story, actually. So Brendan, first he borrowed this sewing machine that my sister wasn't using, and he 
put it in the closet of the bedroom that he had in our house before going off to college, before he left home, and hung all his tools on the door, and he would sit in a chair at the sewing machine that was shoved inside the closet. And he started making belts and sandals and different things like that. And then he went away to college, and while he was at college, he supported himself by making leather work. And in those days, in California, was the original Renaissance Fair. And Brendan was accepted into that because everything was juried at that time. And, and so he began making masks and hats and a lot of other things, handbags and stuff like that. And he supported himself all the way through college. At one point in 1968, which was, you know, the summer of love, he had a little sandal shop in Napa in the town where we grew up. And he made his way through that. And then he was in the expressive arts part of Sonoma State at that point, and he had to do a project in order to graduate. And so he wrote and published, self-published Brendan's Leather Book, which was tremendously successful in its day. Book people were his distributors, and it went into four printings before he decided not to, to reprint it. It's something I've been trying to get him to do for a long time, is to re to republish that book because he still gets messages about it from people that they come across it and find it. And he not only wrote it, but he illustrated it. And it tells you how to make leather stuff in a very clear and concise way, which is really wonderful. So then one, he started making fanny packs, if you remember fanny packs and when they were a big deal in the 80s. And this buyer from Macy's came through the Renaissance Fair and asked him if he would be capable of producing them for Macy's. So he scrabbled around and began hiring people and bought more equipment and did a several runs of fanny packs for Macy's and then started laying awake at night thinking, God, wow, I have all this equipment and more people. What am I going to make? And ultimately, he came up with the idea of these journal covers, which at that time, journaling was first beginning to become a phenomenon in the United States. People were keeping journals. And we've gone through several waves of that, and we're currently in another wave of people keeping journals, which is great for us. And that's really how it all started. And those original people that he, mostly women, that he hired to work for him are still working for him today. Oh, wow. So, I mean, to date it back a little bit, it sounds like in just pulled from some of the stuff we researched, it from the 70s and 80s, he grew a following under the name the the Walking Foot Leather. How did this exactly? How did this initial following begin? Because I mean, even just what you explained with Macy's is sort of a, an anomaly coming yeah. out. Like, how how did he get a following when things like social media and the internet never even existed yet? Yeah, that's a great question. It's hard for people to imagine now how anything happens without technology. I was just telling my nephews recently that. At their ages, you know, they're the first generation to not be able to imagine that, you know, and it's kind of, (laughs) I remind them all the time, there is life beyond your phone. But Brendan grew a following through the Renaissance fairs, and he was on a fair circuit. So at that time, there were other fairs throughout California that he would go to, and people just began to notice. And then when he began making things with embossed imagery on them, which, by the way, is another really great story that Brenton invented 
this process only to realize many years later he went to Italy and realized that some of the presses that we use at Oberon in order to do our work already existed as a whole phenomenon that he never knew anything about. He just put all these things together as an idea and had these shops make him these presses. And, um, you know, he just had the idea, I want to burn images into leather. And once he did began doing that, there was very little of that in the marketplace. And what happened was it used to be, there are some museum stores that are still really classy places, but when I was younger, a museum store was a place that you went to buy really unusual things. And they just snapped Brendan up completely because they found him at the Renaissance fairs. And then he also began doing the American Craft Council show, the ACC shows, and also what was known as the Rosen Show or Buyer's Market of American Craft. And those shows are still going on, and they are gathering places for people, small manufacturers making handmade things and one-of-a-kind you know, artisan people who are selling in those marketplaces. And those are places where museum buyers go and people who have little galleries and stuff like that. And so his reputation grew out of that. We did not have our first website until, I think it might have been 2000. Mm -hmm. Wow. So how, like, that whole time frame, obviously it sounds like there was a lot of growth and and everything and a lot of lessons learned. For our audience who is mostly, like, e-commerce store owners and that type of thing, what sort of things do you feel like are still applicable today based on what you learned during that time frame and he learned during that time frame? You know, first and foremost, it doesn't really matter what you're selling. What? Well, it matters what you're selling. I don't mean that. I mean, the most important thing is that you make something of value, you know, that and then it's, it is unique. And I think we could have done much better with that if we'd been sort of marketing geniuses, which we never were. And also, we're not, you know, we've made a good living all these years and everything, but it was never really about making a whole lot of money. Neither Brenda and I are real materialistic people. We own our houses and we have beautiful gardens and things like that, but we're not... I think a lot of people, one of the reasons that Oberon Design has never been knocked off in any kind of profound way is because I think a lot of people scratch their heads and think, how do they do this? How do they make money doing this? And, you know, the profitability of Oberon has always been somewhat low. So we never had a lot of money to advertise ourselves and go out into the world in a big way. So one of the really smart moves we made, although it was very controversial because we still have wholesale customers. And at that time we were strictly a wholesale company. So when we started our website early on, that was very controversial and and we lost a certain number of wholesale accounts because of it, because we were essentially competing with our own customers. But if we had not done that, we probably wouldn't have survived. Yeah. Can I ask then, um, like, now, is it more web-based, do you feel like, or is it still, you have a, a good amount of wholesale? Oh, yes. Wholesale? Very, very much so. We're much more of a retail company now than we are a wholesale company. Okay. And we've been that way for quite a while. And a part of... of 
the reason for that is because we caught the Kindle wave very early on and and grew up a fan base on Facebook. We were able to go from, you know, just a few hundred people to about 10,000 people in the space of about three years. Mm-hmm. And that really helped us, you know, get out there with the Kindle thing. That's kind of waned now because the Kindle thing is sort of over and everybody is doing so much more on their telephones now and all of that. So, but this is what I mean about, you know, Brennan and I are in our 60s now and it's harder and harder to catch all the new waves of culture and the marketplace. It takes a lot of energy and and it takes a lot of smarts and savvy, you know, in order to do that. And I think that's one of the things that we're really proud of is that we got onto the idea of social media, even though Brendan and I are not Facebook users in our personal life, because we have such a huge artistic and musical life and so many friends that we don't like to spend a lot of time on the computer. We're we're much happier being with people and making music and doing art than we are Mm -hmm. spending time on Facebook. But we recognized that that was where it was all going and that the world was changing and that we really needed to wake up to that and get on board. But one of the reasons why I think All Brand Designs has been so successful is you guys' ability to just pivot and change and evolve to, you know, changes in time. Like you haven't been the same since the 90s when you started out and that's why you were able to survive. So that's a lesson, you know, for everyone. But I want to take you back to earlier you mentioned that Brendan had been approached by someone from Macy's with a large order. Now, that's probably not going to happen for a lot of people, um, as Jeff said. So do you have any advice for independent designers listening to us right now or hand, you know, made e-commerce sellers, people who are doing their own things, you know, creating their own crafts? How can they get their foot in the door with big companies, uh, you know, today? What advice can you give them? What have you learned now that they can benefit from? That is a little bit of a controversial question to ask me as a person, and I'll tell you why. First of all, unless what you're doing lends itself to um, the corporate reality in terms of being able to make a whole lot or sell a whole lot, I really caution people against that. It's If you have the opportunity and you really know that it's going to work for you, great, then you should just go for it and do that. But you need to be very, very wary because if you build your own fan base from the ground up by, first of all, offering something of real quality that you yourself are really dedicated to and that you have faith in and integrity in so that when your customers call you and ask you about what you're doing, you really understand what you're doing. You can provide them with information that helps them. You can encourage them, you know, whatever. People really rely on us for honesty and integrity at Oberon in terms of customer service, and we give that and we offer it. And so we have a tremendous loyalty in our customer base. It's just something that money cannot buy. And when your customer base trusts you and they know time and time again that they're going to get something of value from you, that isn't something that you can buy. It's not anything anybody can give you. It has to be earned. And 
also, I really encourage people to be themselves and to express their individuality because the marketplace is so overwhelming now. There are so many choices that consumers have in so many price ranges and in so many of so much of everything. You know, the choice is just overwhelming. And so you have to be yourself and be individual and not be afraid of that. If you do go for the gold ring in the corporate world and you want to sell the big box stores, you have to just be really careful that they can't destroy you as a small company by, you know, people get very, very excited and they think, oh my gosh, you know, Nordstrom's or any number, I don't need to beat up on yes. Nordstrom's, they just popped into my mind, That's but any kind of big, huge, big box store. People get very, very excited, and then they, I've seen this so many times, I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is, that people sell their little thing where, where I knew some people who, you know, those that incense room freshener stuff where you put sticks in, incense. in some, yeah, in some kind of essential oil, and then it perfumes the room or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, people making things getting it out there, they put their heart in it, they have beautiful packaging, they get a track, you know, they're, some buyer sees them and is attracted to it, they buy it. But if you're not careful and you don't watch their back and you produce 100000 of something for some chain store and they turn around and send it back to you and tell you they don't want it or they're not going to pay their bills or whatever, I've seen so many companies be destroyed by that kind of behavior. So you want to be really, really smart when you get into a situation like that. And I really caution people about getting too elated and too starstruck by that kind of stuff because this the whole tech world has got everybody in this dream of like you wake up the next day and you're a multimillionaire. But in manufacturing, it very, very rarely works that way. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's really wise advice. Yep. So, geez, there's so many things I want to ask you. It's such, I know, I know. <laughs> it's such an interesting story. Let's jump to pros and cons of working with family and business. Because at the beginning, you mentioned that it's difficult. Yes. Um, I have some experience, even myself, working with family <laughs> on a couple different businesses. I'm curious to your thoughts on it. You know, it's so individual. I come from a very close family where we we have a, a real sort of tribal kind of culture. We stick together. We're very close. We enjoy each other's company. That isn't to say that that's always easy or that we don't all look at each other and go, we're all nuts, you know, <laughs> or whatever. I think any large family knows that, that there's always stuff that seems crazy within a family. Though I think that one of the successes, the reason that Brennan and I have been successful is because we really love each other as brother and sister. And in, even though we've had our challenges and we've had uh, really difficult moments, in particular sort of glass, Brennan tends to be glass half empty and I'm glass three quarters full. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of how I live my life. So those things are all very difficult. But If you really care about the person and you really love them, then you find a way to work around it or you salvage your relationship by not working together anymore. And I think that 
to be honest that that's, you know, and, and I think it's even worse if you're married to someone and you try to work with them. And it all depends on how much equality you have in a relationship and whether you're really a team or whether you're both in your own corner. And I don't know what else I could say about that. I think it just is so dependent on the people involved. Yeah, that's funny you bring that up because my wife is a pretty intricate part of one of the businesses <laughs> that I run and, and we're doing all, all right so far. I'm curious. Good. Too. Well, that means you're a great team. Uh-huh. I, my sister and her husband are a marvelous team and they're winemakers and they've been tremendously successful. And the reason is because they're a fantastic team. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very true. With the this philosophy on love, I want to know, do you think in non uh, family or relationship style, kind of in that capacity, whether it's significant other or family or whatever, does that still apply? Like if employees or coworkers love each other in that capacity, does it make for a better business? I think it does. I think it overwhelmingly does. That if you feel you're being abused or you're not being treated well, or you have a boss that screams at you and is abusive or whatever, it's not healthy ever to stay in those kind of situations, even if you you think you keep justifying it to yourself because you're afraid or you're, it's been so difficult to get a job that you want to keep it. And those are all really individual choices. But I think the key to all of this stuff is collaboration and that if you have respect for the people that you work with, the people that you hire if you give them an opportunity to shine, if you give them an opportunity to to grow by giving them the benefits of education when it's appropriate or responsibility or creative insight or, you know, creative ability, then it's just like any teacher-mentor relationship and or one of equality where people are collaborating together. You know, it's very difficult to to really be democratic and to live in a democratic way. It means that everybody has to have their voice, and that can be really frustrating at times, and it can slow you down. It can do a lot that in a business atmosphere isn't really that great. You know, it's it's wonderful if you can just be the king or queen at the top and make all the decisions. But as I say, if you have a great group of people, you learn things from them. And every once in a while, somebody will say something and it's a complete revelation. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's it. And if you're just dictatorial in any kind of relationship, then you miss out on all of that. And so... You know, if you want people to be loyal, if you want to be able to trust them and have them trust you, then those people need to have a voice at some point, at some level. And that's something that that we've attempted to do. We haven't always been successful, but you can only try. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important lesson. Now. Um, Becca, your role in the company is a vice president, but take an average day or an average week. What do you actually do? What do you spend most of your time on and, you know, with the rest of the team and your brother and, and the company as a whole? Well, all of us really tend to wear a lot of different hats. In fact, I used to joke that I wanted to get rich making a lazy Susan executive table that you could just... <laughs> push and you know your next job description would come up for that hour and a half of the day or you know whatever but you know basically for years and years what I've done at Oberon is whatever I see that needed doing 
And that might be from the pinnacles of what I love to do most, which is work with imagery and writing and all that kind of stuff, to going down and working in the shipping department in November when when my shipper needed boxes together. And I think that's another reason why it's been so we've been successful in staying in business for almost 30 years is because, you know, there are no elite sort of positions at Oberon. It's it's really from the ground up. If I need to go out and work attaching clips to barrettes in order to meet a deadline, then I do that. And then I go back upstairs and write a letter to a CEO of some company that we're dealing with. And But in terms of my regular daily routine at this point in the history of the company, it's really about administrative stuff that I do, and it's about a little bit of purchasing. It's about working with our production manager on issues. It's about working with our bookkeeper on if we have, oh, you know, we have to relook at our safety things that we're doing or policy issues or the health insurance package or, you know, kind of whatever. And then I spend an increasing amount of time right now doing the catalogs that we produce every year and doing social media. And so I do all the photography for the company, for instance, for all of our social media stuff. And then I work with a longtime friend of mine for 45 years, David Alosi, who is the webmaster at Oberon. And he and I do photography together, and we work on the website and the blog and all of that stuff. So what do you feel like... I'm going to be totally transparent here. We're actually derailing from many of our original questions just because your your story is, we weren't kidding about, there's a, there's a lot of wisdom here. Um, and I want to make sure we... Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> oh, well, seriously, I just feel like I'm I'm sitting at like a, a table in front of a wise old soul and <laughs> taking, taking it all in. What do you feel like, it's because I get, I get the impression on one hand that both of you have this very earthy, artsy point of view I kind of get the feel that you're a little more of the business sense. Like, what is it, do you feel like, what is it in particular? If you had to pinpoint one or two things that the two of you together just make or do that makes this business successful? We thrash it out. (laughs) You you can't, you, you know, in a small business Stuff comes up every day. You know, there's fun stuff and there's the stuff you hate to address. And one of the, the things that Brennan jokes about for years at Oberon, and it's, it's, it is funny, but it's also not funny, is that all anybody wants to do there is make things. We don't have any people in our company and never have that were really closer type personalities or, you know, uh, go for the throat salespeople, you know, and that we could regret that, but we don't really. We just kind of say, well, you know, we managed to stay in business all these years and we're happy for that. We're, We're happy for how it's all gone. And in, I would say that that is one of the main issues at the core of any kind of tension or how do you, you know, grow a business, how do you sustain a business. We had a whole series of reps in the old days that were book reps, and then we did have some gift reps. And none of us were really that 
into managing all those people, which is kind of a full-time job in itself, because we were really busy trying to run the company and make things. And later on, when we thought of going back to that, it was like, oh, you know, nobody wanted to do it. And so other than headhunt and try to find this perfect person in the world who might come to Oberon and be our star salesperson, it was just, it's always been sort of a missing link. And that is something in terms of giving other younger people coming up and trying to grow businesses. This is the whole thing of collaboration. You need to to really think about what you're doing you know, all the whole ecology, all the parts of what you're doing. And if you're going to collaborate and find people to work with, then you need, you know, the super creative person, you need the super administrative person, and then you need the person who just loves to go out there in the marketplace and sell, sell, sell. And you you need that for the complete marriage, you know, and to, to really be a huge success. One should always be able to step back and look at that and then try to find it. Okay, I need somebody with an MBA. We were so busy just kind of living our lives and not really thinking in terms of being business people. We were just doing what we were doing because we're more artist personalities. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that quite answers your question, but that that's what comes to mind at the sort of the heart of it. It does. What final thoughts do you have for other business owners listening? Well, gosh, I just encourage everybody, you know, it's when I was coming up, things were so much easier for my generation. Things didn't cost as much. Um, Education was free, a lot of it. There weren't so many people, you know, it's, it's really, really tough. And I think that the, the, you know, the wisdom that I've that I have to offer, I have kind of already offered, but I would go back to the idea that you can't experience, the, the school of hard knocks and real experience is the great thing in small businesses. You can't go to school and have them tell you how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. You just have to wade in there and do it and be smart. And if it isn't working, you have to change what you're doing or cut your losses and go on to the next thing. But the thing is, is that you, that you have to try. And, you know, my coda in life and in art is Einstein's imagination is more important than knowledge. And you have to just keep dreaming and keep imagining what might come next. Because if I've learned anything in life from being a cancer survivor and a small business person, it's that when you wake up in the morning, you never know what's going to happen. This idea that we're all safe all the time and that we can fix everything and that we're never going to die and that, you know, everything is somehow, if we can just do it right, it's all going to be perfect, is not really real what life is life, it takes you along with it. And you have to wake up every day and think to yourself, do I like what I'm doing? Can I imagine something else for for myself? And if you're alive in that way, then your business comes along with you. And you keep dreaming up things for your business as well as for yourself that make it as successful as it's going to be in that moment. But you can't expect your business to be successful if you are not successful in yourself in in terms of growing yourself as a person and being a good person and a kind and compassionate person and 
and a creative person, and no matter what it is you're trying to do. And so you have to keep your imagination alive. You don't just come up with a formula and and that leads you to some success. You're still you. <laughs> you still have to get up and be with yourself every day. So that's what I would say, that imagination is more important than knowledge. Thank you, Becca. That actually put a huge smile on my face. I kid you not, like the entire time <laughs> you're talking, I'm just, I have this huge grin. It made me really happy. Where can we find out more about you? And I'm seeing you, like, I mean, there's auburndesign.com. Obviously, we're going to put that in the notes. And maybe we can try to get your social media. But I think we'd rather hear from you. What do you think is the best source to learn about you and Brendan? Oh, gosh. You know, we're we're kind of country mice. We're we're not really <laughs> out there on the Internet very much. You know, I have a a... I've been working on a website for my art for like five or six years. <laughs> it always kind of goes, you know, underneath. So really, really the best, the best way, the most public way that we are in life is through Oberon Design. But that's pretty much all I can really tell you. We're, we really are sort of local yokels. Okay. <laughs> where Design. where sure. is home for you? So Brendan and I grew up in the Napa Valley, and the Napa Valley is bordered by some counties, Mendocino County, Lake County, Sonoma County, Solano County. So Brendan lives in Sonoma County, which is more towards the coast. So he, he lives in Sebastopol, which is near near the beach. And I'm more inland. I live in Lake County, which is, you know, I've always preferred village life. So I've always tended to live in really tiny little towns. And I live in Middletown, California, which is a little teeny tiny place. Although last year it was in the national news because we had some terrible fires here and uh, half the town burned down. Oh, but other than that, I don't think it really has much claim to fame. <laughs> I was wondering, because I'm, I'm wondering if I can come over and join you for tea or something. <laughs> oh, I would love that. Well, so where are you guys? I say I am based out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, so I'm a little further away. I am also. <laughs> well, you know, you live in Michigan, and a very dear friend of mine who is a famous writer of note, Jim Harrison, who just died recently, is from Michigan, and I recommend that you look up his books. Uh, wait, what's the author's name again? His name is Jim Harrison, Jim and Harrison. he's famous for being from Michigan. Okay. Jim Harrison. Yeah, I have a, a background. My formal background is actually all in uh, literature and education. So, uh, I, I Oh, my gosh. Reading. Well, Jim Harrison is considered to be one of the great American novelists. Excellent. So he wrote Legends of the Fall. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they just take a little. Ref- it's been a while since I've touched any like classic American literature or anything. But no, I'll definitely uh, refresh in my memory on his work. So excellent. Well, thank you so much. This interview really has been a treat. I, I think. Uh, oh, good. Well, it was really sweet to talk to you, and I wish both of you well. And it's really great what you're doing. It's it's a good thing to find out about other people and small businesses in America because. This country really needs its small businesses, and it really needs people to be making the economy, you know, grow again. So we agree. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Becca. It was a pleasure. All right, dear. One Stop Shop is a production of Receiptful. Learn how to personalize and tailor every interaction with your customer by visiting Receiptful.com. 
This podcast was produced in partnership with Come Alive Creative. For help building, improving, and marketing your e-commerce store, visit comealivecreative.com. To listen to more episodes from this series, you can visit receiptful.com forward slash podcast. Or if you want to give us a rating on iTunes, receiptful.com forward slash iTunes. Oh, 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 oh